So if you're new, we've been in a series um, called The Songs of Jesus, based on the book of Psalms. And uh, we're taking a short break in our series, and we'll get back to that after Easter. Today, two Sundays before Easter, has traditionally been called Passion Sunday. It's the beginning of what's called Passion Tide, the last two weeks of Lent, two weeks leading up to Easter. During this season, during Passion Tide, the tradition of, of some churches is to cover all of the crosses and all the crucifixes with a veil. And the veiling was associated with the passage that was just read, specifically the last verse where it says, Jesus hid himself from the people because they were about to stone him, but it was not yet his time. So this season, this Passion Tide season, has traditionally been about emphasizing the, the humiliation of God the Son. Then on Good Friday, the, the, the veils would be removed to emphasize the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, this passage right here, if, 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 uh, if you haven't studied it, um, and once you do, it may surprise you. It might even mess with your head a little bit. And here's why. This section actually starts all the way back in verse 31, where it says, To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said... Now, Jesus is talking to people who say that they believe in him. But when you get to the end, what do they want to do? The same people want to stone him. The same people want to kill him. So what happened? Well, Jesus here in this passage is trying to show them that they really don't believe in him. He's trying to show them that, that they're really not his disciples. He, he's, he wants to show them that, that their faith is counterfeit. And so in love, he tells them. And we know he succeeds because they want to kill him. This is a powerful illustration, I think, that gets to the heart of our faith. Jesus says, this is who I am, this is what I came to do. You either believe this and worship me, or you don't believe this and you stone me. There is no in-between. So do you, do you see how critical this is for us? Do you see how important this is for us? Now, if, if you happen not to be interested in knowing more about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus or, or knowing if your faith is genuine, then you might not get this. It might be boring and maybe offensive to you, but I'm telling you, this can make all the difference in the world for you and your faith and your life here in this broken world. We're going to look at four questions this morning about the heart of Christianity, and Jesus answers them. And so the first question, if you're taking notes using the handout in your bulletin, the first question is this, why did Jesus come to us? Jesus came to us to deliver us from death. In verse 51, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Now, the people here thought that he was just talking about, you know, physical death, but Jesus is actually talking about the final death. 
He is not promising that those who believe in him will never experience physical death. He's promising that believers will never experience the final death. And so what is that? What is death? Well, according to the Bible, death is not just unconsciousness. Death is not just some annihilation, state of annihilation. Death is separation. Physical death is separation from from the body. And the final death, spiritual death, is eternal separation from God. Now, it's very important for you to remember that we are part of a bigger story with King Jesus at the center. We are part of a much bigger story, a grand cosmic drama, and you all have a place in it, and you all have a role in it. It started back in the garden with Adam and Eve. And God gave Adam and Eve one simple command. He said, don't eat the fruit of that one tree. There was nothing wrong with that tree. Nothing wrong. It wasn't a poisonous tree. It was a test of their trust in God. And you know what's interesting to me? Is that God didn't say, don't kill. God didn't say, don't lie. God didn't say, don't cheat. What he says is, don't eat. That's interesting to me because what it means, what he's telling us is that sin is not just doing bad things. The essence of sin is putting ourselves in God's place and deciding for ourselves what is good for us. Sin is trying to be our own king. That's what it is. And it's devastating God lovingly warns us that when we try to do that, it is fatal to us. We fail miserably. It's impossible for us. When Adam and Eve ate, they immediately experienced spiritual death, separation from God. And as a result, physical death entered the world. But God is merciful, amen? God is merciful and he intervened with a promise. So our great story continues. It could have ended right then and there with Adam and Eve dead under the tree, but because of God's promise, the great cosmic drama continues. God said, I will send someone who will deliver you from death, from the final death. And the whole rest of the Bible is about God keeping his promise and advancing his kingdom of grace. That's what the whole scripture is about. So let's apply this, all right? What difference does this make to you in your life here today? Well, the Bible says that the greatest problem we face is death. And most of us try to live most of our lives ignoring that, right? But that's impossible because we either get diagnosed with cancer or somebody else who we love, we found out, has been killed or they died, whatever it is, and we can't ignore it. We can't get through this life ignoring death. You know, there's a story about my son, Dakota, that I usually tell like at memorial services or funerals about when he was five years old. He and I were sitting on the couch in the living room while his little sister, Victoria, and, and mama were taking naps. Dakota was about to finish kindergarten, and I decided that I would have the then what conversation with him. So I asked him, "Um, 
you're about to finish kindergarten, right? Yeah. Then what? He said, I go to first grade. I asked, and then what? He said, I'll go to second grade, and then third grade, and then one day to the big kid school. You mean high school? Yeah. Well, great. And then what? Go to college? Yeah. And then what? Get a job? Well, good. I hope you do. And then what? I'll get married and have my own kids. And at that point, I'm thinking, why am I putting myself through this? He's just five years old. I said, okay, wow. Great. And then what? They'll move out. I'm like, good. I hope they do. (laughs) And then what? I'll get old. And then what? I'll die. Okay. Then what? And he looked at me without any hesitation. He said, I will go to heaven. I will see the streets of gold, the river of life, and Jesus who died for me. It's amazing. Five years old. And I asked him that because we all, we all need to come to grips with the final answer, the final then what question. Because it is only when we're ready to die that we're ever really ready to live. We don't have to ignore it or pretend it doesn't exist to get through this life. We can face it because we have a great hope. And that brings us to our second question. Second question is, who is Jesus? Well, Jesus says in verse 51, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. And the people said, who do you, who do you think you are? What do you mean? If anyone keeps your word, we'll never see death. They, they go on, Abraham died as did the prophets. You say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Who do you think you are? And Jesus replies, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and he was glad. And the people said, what are you talking about? You are not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. Why in the world did they want to stone him? Why did they want to kill him? Because Jesus said, I am. When Jesus says, I am, what he's doing is he is claiming to be God in human flesh. They didn't like that. In Exodus, when God appears to Moses in the burning bush, God calls himself, I am, Yahweh, the ultimate name of God. And so when Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am, he's making this awesome claim of absolute eternal existence. Jesus says, I am breaking this down in terms that are so simple, terms that you can understand. I am God, Jesus says. And so they picked up stones to throw at him. See, Leviticus 24, the law of Israel way back then at that time said, anyone who blasphemes the name of the Lord is to be put to death. The entire assembly must stone him. So these religious leaders only had two options when it came to Jesus. Worship him or stone him. And there was not a third option. It was one or the other. There are 
No other options. And here's the application for us. I'll introduce it with C.S. Lewis, who says this. He said, in mere Christianity, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept him as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on level with a man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option to us. He did not intend to. See, we all have to come to grips with the question in the title. Is Jesus Lord a lunatic or a liar? We have to come to grips with that. The application for us is Jesus only gives us two options. We either worship him or stone him. We're either his disciples or we make ourselves to be his enemies. We either crown him or we kill him. There is no in-between. And if you think there is, then you're not listening to what Jesus is saying. So, my challenge to all of us is to listen to Jesus and believe. Jesus claims to be God. How will you respond to that? Third question. What did Jesus do? What did he do to deliver us from death. Now, Jesus doesn't explicitly tell us here, but he gives us a clue. He says, Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it, and he was glad. But what's he talking about? What's he talking about when he said Abraham rejoiced? Well, many, many, many years before this, Abraham's greatest joy was when he walked down the mountain with his son Isaac by his side. Let me explain. Many, many, many years before this, God made a promise to Abraham that one of Isaac's descendants would be the promised deliverer. But then in Genesis 22, God tells Abraham to sacrifice Isaac? Now, when I read that in the Bible, I am inclined to say that is horrible and I don't want to have anything to do with a God like that. But the problem is that I don't fully understand the cultural setting and how God is using this situation to shine a light on the gospel of grace. Now, we don't have time to get into all the details, but for now, know that Abraham, when God told him to do that, he didn't protest, he didn't argue, he didn't complain. Abraham knows something about his culture and God that we don't see right away. And so Abraham took Isaac, went up the mountain, built an altar, arranged the wood, tied up his son, and put him on the altar. And his son could have tried to fight him, but he didn't. Abraham took his knife and he raised it over his son. And just before he ripped into Isaac's heart, a voice from heaven says, Abraham, don't harm the boy. Abraham turned 
and saw that God provided a substitute. A ram stuck in a thicket, and Abraham was able to sacrifice the ram instead of his son. Imagine the joy Abraham had when he came down the mountain with his son. God will keep his promise just like he said. Abraham called that place Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. And the author adds that even to this day, there is a saying, on the mountain, the Lord, it will be provided. A literal translation says, on the mountain of the Lord, he will be seen. Who will be seen? 2,000 years later, Jesus says right here in the passage we're looking at this morning in John chapter 8, Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. See, in giving Isaac back, God showed Abraham that Isaac could not be the one to deliver his people from that final death because Abraham and Isaac were sinners who needed a deliverer themselves. But Abraham came to know that on the mountain of the Lord, the real promised son will be seen. By faith, Abraham saw Jesus and rejoiced. Through Abraham and Isaac, God is pointing to another time when a father and son would walk up the mountain. An altar was built in the form of a cross and Jesus was nailed to it. And Jesus did not try to fight it. The father raised a knife over his son, but this time there was no voice from heaven saying stop. And when the son cried out, heaven was silent. And the knife of God's justice, which we deserved, ripped through his son's heart and Jesus was plunged into the final death. And when Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus fully experienced the final death for us. And in ways we will never understand, he experienced eternal separation from God so that you and I never will. And so now we can live with him forever. See, the final death is not just separation from a loving relationship with God. It is also justice. It is also, it's also wrath. God didn't want us to experience that. And so he provided a substitute. And Jesus was our substitute, and now we can live with him forever. On the cross, Jesus died for all of our sin, yesterday, today, and forever. If you trust him for that. He died for all of our sin, especially our sin of putting ourselves in the place of God and trying to be our own king, our own savior, and us determining that I have the authority to decide for me what is right and wrong and what life should be all about. King Jesus did what he came to do. He died to give us life. And on the third day, the Father raised Jesus from the dead. And that means that Jesus' sacrifice was accepted. And it guarantees that we'll never be separated from God. We will never, ever, ever experience the wrath of God because Jesus took it for us. So much teaching 
about from the scriptures or even about Jesus is just Jesus being an example. Jesus was good. Be like Jesus. Jesus didn't come just to be our example. He came to be our substitute. Therefore, so much teaching is used to guilt trip people and to trying to get them to behave. If you want God to love you, you better do this, better not do that. But God's love is unconditional because of Jesus. And out of love and, and, and appreciation, we want to live lives that glorify him. That's deliverance. God came to deliver us from guilt and give us grace. Last question. How can we receive what Jesus offers? How can you be delivered from the final death? The answer is believe in Jesus as your king and as your deliverer. What's that mean? Well, Jesus makes a promise in 51 when he says, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. What does it mean to keep his word? To keep his word is to believe in his word, especially his word about who God is, God in human flesh. And then what he has done, he died our death so that we will never see the final death. And what happens when we believe that? Immediately, God takes you out of spiritual death forever. And then the process begins of taking death out of you. It doesn't happen overnight, but it does happen. A lot of things change, but I'm only going to mention three. There is all kind of application for us today, right here, right now. And I'll mention three. To the extent that you know that you will never see death, it will change your whole perspective and the way that you live your life, even when it comes to having joy that is not controlled by your circumstances. That is life-giving right there, having joy that is not controlled by your circumstances. Like Abraham, we will rejoice regardless of our circumstances. The Bible says that, that Abraham lived in a tent in the desert for a hundred years. I can't imagine that. You know a place east from here? I saw on the map, on a Google map, not too far from here. It gets hotter and hotter and you go inland. There's a place called Hellhole. I don't think I want to live there. But that's the kind of experience that Abraham had in a tent for a hundred years. He never owned a piece of the promised land, except for the gravesite where he buried his wife. But he could still rejoice in the middle of all that suffering. And how could he do that? He saw the day of Jesus. It says, Abraham was longing for a better country, a heavenly one. He was longing for the kingdom of God. And to the extent that you see that, you will never see death. You will have joy that is not killed by your horrible circumstances. Your horrible circumstances can make us feel like we're dying on the inside. But when we see the eternal life that we have in Jesus and with Jesus in his kingdom, when we meditate on that and we fix our eyes on who Jesus is and what he has done, it fills your heart with joy and it fills your heart with life. And you can persevere and you can endure no matter what this messed up, broken world throws at you. You can still have joy. Next. The next thing that'll happen to you is you'll obey God even when his commands seem to contradict his promise. Abraham was willing to obey God and offer up his son even though God said the deliverer would be a descendant of Isaac. How in the world could, could he do that? 
Well, the Bible says Abraham believed God would keep his promise, even if it meant raising Isaac from the dead. Now, just a side note real quick. If you hear a voice that tells you to sacrifice someone, it's not God. Okay, I just want to make that clear right now. And if you think so, talk to me and we'll work it out together. To the extent that you believe in life after death, you will obey God even when his command seems to contradict his promise. For example, if you give up the life that you think you want for Jesus' sake, you will find the life that you really want. If you give up the life that you think that you want for Jesus' sake, you will find the life that you really want. God does tell us what, what, what is right and wrong in his word, not because he's some cosmic killjoy, but because he loves you and wants the best for you. And when we say, I don't care what God has to say about this, I'm going to do this anyway, then we're just inviting destruction. It doesn't work. It, it, it's like, I've told you this before. You know, you don't want your kid to stick a, a metal knife in the light socket, Right? Because you love your kid. And when your kid says, well, I don't care what you say. You're just being legalistic. I'm going to do what I want to do. And stick the knife in the metal socket, uh, in the in electrical socket. And, and it's, it's destructive, right? We have to trust God that he knows better. And then last, you'll treat all people with dignity and respect. That same guy, C.S. Lewis, said, the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature, which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. You have no idea the renewal God has planned for you. You know, it's so easy for us to look at somebody and say, well, there's just no hope for that dude. And sometimes you find that person in the mirror. If you're like me, you do often. But God is in the process of restoring his people and making them into everything they were created to be. And one day in heaven, we will see them and ourselves fully restored. And that changes the way that you see people and the way that you treat them. To the extent you know you have eternal life in God's eternal kingdom, you will treat all people with dignity and respect. So let me ask you, how do you respond to Jesus' claim? Jesus says, this is the heart of Christianity. I am God. I've come to deliver you from the final death and to give you life by dying your death for you. And you either believe this and you worship me, he says, or you don't believe this and you stone me. There is no other option. And so my question is, what is your response? Well, maybe for some of you, it's, you know what? I don't believe yet, but I'm not ready to stone him. How can I know if what he says is true? Well, then, the application here for you, the practical application for you, is to ask God to show you. Say to Jesus, you know what? If what you say is true, please make it real to me. And God answers those prayers. Or maybe others of you, it, you know, it became real to you this morning. You know what that means if it became real to you this morning? It means that when God calls you uh, to turn from a life that grinds you down and to turn to the one who gives you life, it means that you can. 
the application for you is to give your heart to Jesus and your life to Jesus today. Ask him to be your king. Ask him to be your deliverer and to help you live for him. And then finally, maybe others of you say, you know what, I believe in Jesus. I've believed him for a while now. I try to worship him, but I look at my life and I just don't see very much joy. I struggle with obeying Jesus. And I don't treat all people with dignity and respect. Does that mean I'm not a believer? Not necessarily, no. It means that like all disciples of Christ, the application for you is that your faith in Jesus needs to go deeper. And it never goes deeper than the gospel. It's all grace. And it's all you need. You don't need anything else. King Jesus is enough. Believe it this morning. Amen? Amen. Let's bow your heads with me.